Hey everybody, this is your host David Rayburn. Today I am here with Dr. Hobson. I want you to grab a seat, get comfortable. We're going to bring you some Critical Care Corner. Welcome Dr. Hobson. Thanks for having me, David. Good to be here. All right. So Dr. Hobson's an assistant professor of pediatrics, as well as the medical director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit and the ECMO programs at Riley Hospital for Children. Uh, today, we're going to kind of do a potpourri of critical care. Um, we'll try and make it easy to remember uh, when you get down to uh, sit down for the boards. So I think the easiest way for us to do this is maybe kind of present a case and work through it from a critical care aspect, and we'll kind of highlight the important things along the way. Does that sound okay to you? Sounds great. All right. Uh, we'll do a hypothetical case. So we've got a five-year-old male. He's got three days of cough. Chest x-ray shows a right lower lobe pneumonia. Vital signs show a heart rate of 150. Blood pressure is 100 over 70. Cap refill is a little delayed, four seconds. Um, is there anything that worries you about that presentation? Yeah, David. So let's let's assume that this child has evolving sepsis secondary to pneumonia. One of the biggest factors that is going to determine the outcome for this particular child is the ability of the clinician who's taking care of him at the bedside to recognize the early signs of shock. There's a, a pretty well-known study out in the pediatric critical care literature. It was published back in 2003 in pediatrics. And it's entitled, Early Reversal of Pediatric Septic Shock by Community Physicians is Associated with Improved Outcome. And really, the overall take-home point from this study is that children with sepsis whose shock was recognized early and whose shock was treated in accordance with the PALS guideline for pediatric sepsis, those children had about a 30% improvement in survival, which obviously is a huge difference in terms of outcome. And so I think my message here is, by and large, it's not going to be us in the pediatric ICU who have the biggest impact for these children, but really it's the providers in our clinics and in our emergency departments who are going to make the biggest impact. Kind of got to get it started early and not wait until they get to the ICU. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So getting back to this particular child, if you look at his vital signs, he's got a normal blood pressure, and probably at this point, he also has a normal mental status. He might be awake and talking. And so I think when we encounter that scenario, when the child's normal ten normotensive and they're awake and alert, a lot of times we, we might have a false reassurance that this patient hasn't yet developed shock. But if you really think about things, look at his significant tachycardia, look at his poor perfusion on exam, we should be very concerned about this particular child. And I think here's kind of a good, in terms of boards, just a good review of the classic criteria for SIRS, or the Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. You need two of the following four criteria. Number one, temperature instability, whether it be fever or perhaps hypothermia for infants. Number two is tachycardia, then tachypnea, and then lastly, some type of white blood cell derangement, whether that's leukocytosis, leukopenia, or a significant left shift with greater than 10% bands. Sepsis is simply going to be SIRS due to either culture-proven or clinically suspected infection. So importantly, take note that blood pressure is not part of the SIRS criteria, and why is that the case? kind of takes us back to the days of physiology where there's a, a really important equation um, of mean arterial pressure. And this child's mean arterial pressure 
is the product of his cardiac output times his systemic vascular resistance. And if you think about the blood vessels of children, their arteries are extremely compliant. They can vasoconstrict very, very tightly. And so in the setting of a falling cardiac output, whether that's due to hypovolemia, sepsis, or cardiogenic shock, whatever the etiology in the setting of a declining cardiac output, children can increase their systemic vascular resistance and maintain a normal blood pressure in order to keep perfusion going to their vital organs, mainly the heart and the brain. And so I think this particular pediatric physiology really has a few implications for us at the bedside. Number one, again, just to reiterate the point that we can't equate hypotension and shock. Children can have overt floored shock and yet be normotensive, the so-called compensated shock. If you have a child under your care in shock who is hypotensive, that's a very late and a very ominous sign. I was going to say, because they will ride, 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 and then just fall off the cliff. That's exactly right. So it's scary uh, to see that. When you see hypotension, you are late in your resuscitation for sure. And so because a change in blood pressure is going to be a late finding, our clinical exam at the bedside becomes very, very important in recognizing shock. And so because the body is trying desperately to maintain perfusion to the brain, to the heart, and to the kidneys, that blood flow is going to be directed away from the peripheral circulation. And thus, these children, as was illustrated in the case, we're going to recognize early signs of shock by way of cool distal extremities, weak peripheral pulses, and delayed capillary refill. And so, in summary, remember your SIRS criteria. Think about especially in the wintertime when we see a lot of kids with with bronchiolitis, fever, tachypnea, tachycardia, those can all be pretty nonspecific signs. And so for pediatric sepsis, I think the take-home point is that our index of clinical suspicion has to be fairly high. Second take-home point, hypotension and altered mental status, again, are going to be late findings and should really alert us to the fact that this kid has immediate impending systemic failure. And then lastly, just a couple other clinical marks of shock, oliguria or low urine output and the presence of metabolic acidosis are other findings uh, consistent with shock. All right. So I think we, we did highlight a little bit and we're using this word shock a lot and there's certainly different types of shock that we have to think about. Um, I think this kid has a little bit of a mixed picture, which we have a pneumonia. We talked about SIRS criteria. I'm sure if we got a white count on him, it's probably elevated. So I think he would fit the septic shock picture. Um, but also he's got some delayed cap refill. Let's say his blood pressure starts to tank. How can we differentiate between septic shock and hypovolemic shock for the purpose of the boards? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question and one that's not going to be evident right away. So as you mentioned, is the tachycardia due to sepsis or is it because he's been sick with his pneumonia, hasn't really had good oral intake over the last few days, certainly probably has some increased insensible losses from the dachypnea associated with his his respiratory process. And so 
is he simply dehydrated or is this septic shock or is it a, is it a picture of both? And it's a tricky question sometimes. And there's a couple of things to help guide us. The first of which is just a, an adequate history. Um, as mentioned, how has his oral intake been over the past few days? Is there a concurrent history of GI losses from, from diarrhea or vomiting? And then the second the second component to help us tease out hypovolemia versus sepsis is really the child's response to fluid, se- fluid resuscitation. And so if you look at the PALS septic shock algorithm, what's recommended in that first hour of resuscitation are fluid boluses given in 20 cc per kilo doses of isotonic fluids up to a total of 60 to 80 mLs per kilo. The child who has straightforward hypovolemia should have a nice resolution of their tachycardia and their, their perfusion on exam should start to improve after simple fluid resuscitation, whereas the child with sepsis often remains in persistent shock despite that 60 to 80 cc's per kilo of fluid resuscitation. And then we're talking about the whole other level of uh, taking care of these sick kids, adding pressors, etc. But I think for the boards, that's probably not necessary for us to get into here. Um, I do want to kind of move into the next part of our scenario, though, is so we have this sick kid in front of us. We've talked about his vital signs. Nurse comes up to you and she's like, I'm having a hard time getting an IV. We've poked him 10 times. We know we want to get this kid some fluids. Any other options we have for kind of urgent, emergent resuscitation? Yeah, so... Vascular access in pediatrics uh, certainly can be quite difficult, especially when kids are severely dehydrated or their their peripheral circulation is intensely vasoconstricted, as we just talked about. And so certainly intraosseous access is an acceptable alternative route of administration of fluids and medications for children who are critically ill when venous access is unsuccessful. One of the nice things about the intraosseous route is that from an anatomic standpoint, there are veins that drain the medullary sinuses in the bone marrow. And those particular medullary sinuses, unlike the other veins, they don't collapse uh, in the setting of shock or hypovolemia. And so the most common sites for I.O. access in pediatrics would be the uh, proximal tibia, the distal femur, sometimes the distal tibia, or you can, you can go to the upper extremity at the proximal humerus. In terms of absolute contraindications for an I.O., really there's only a few, um, those being a fractured bone or a uh, bone that was previously penetrated perhaps by another IO attempt uh, in the setting of trauma in any type of vascular uh, injury to the extremity, and then from an infectious risk standpoint, any overlying cellulitis. And I was going to say, anything that we uh, can't put through the IO? And that's the, that's the thing that comes up sometime. And importantly, anything that you can give through a PIV can safely be administered through an IO, and that would include fluid resuscitation, blood products, any medications, including those used uh, in the setting of of a code or cardiopulmonary resuscitation. All right, so we've recognized that this kid's going to need some additional support. We know he needs some fluids. 
We are going to do an IO to get access on him. We talked about the 20 mils per kilo up to 60 to 80 initially for resuscitation. Um, We think that, so he's getting worse now and we think that he's going to need to be intubated. What kind of things do we need to think about? What should be going through our minds as we prepare to do that? And then any types of things on the boards you think the boards may ask us regarding that? Sure. In terms of airway management, I think, first off, this is just a really good reminder that effective bag mask ventilation is just as important of a life-saving skill as endotracheal intubation itself. So I would encourage everyone to practice those skills. But in terms of, in terms of intubation, there's probably a couple things to know for the boards. The first is the appropriate sized endotracheal tube for a child. And so the diameter of a pediatric endotracheal tube is calculated by dividing the child's age in years by four and then adding four. So for example, a six-year-old child would be intubated with a size five and a half tube. Now, one caveat, and that is that is for an uncuffed endotracheal tube. Clinically, if you elect to use a cuffed tube, you simply subtract half a size downward. And we prefer cuffed tubes, correct? My general rule of thumb is any child who's critically ill and may need high pressures on the ventilator, it's best just to start with a cuffed endotracheal tube. What about, um, I've also heard that you can sometimes use the size of their pinky as a uh, rule for tube size. Have you ever seen that? Uh, or you just use math? You can estimate based on the uh, the size of their fifth digit, but probably <laughs> the, the safest thing to do would be a little mental math. Age over four plus four. Exactly. All right, perfect. Uh, in terms of other things that may come up on your board exams, there are some complications that are immediately associated with the procedure of intubation. Uh, first and foremost of which would be an esophageal intubation where obviously a misplaced airway can lead to significant hypoventilation and hypoxemia. And so remember that the gold standard for confirmation of an endotracheal tube within a child's trachea, that gold standard for confirmation is going to be your end-tidal CO2. Second complication is placing the tube too deep, which can lead to a right mainstem intubation. And so the equation here, the equation for the appropriate depth of insertion is three times the diameter of the tube. So for that six-year-old who's intubated with a five and a half tube, the depth of insertion is going to be 16 and a half centimeters. And then lastly, uh, commonly in the, especially in the emergency department setting, there's going to be children who come in, uh, particularly in the setting of trauma, for example, who have full stomachs, and they're going to be at risk for aspiration of gastric contents. And so the proper technique here is to utilize rapid sequence intubation techniques which would include cricoid pressure during laryngoscopy. Are you saying that I shouldn't wait uh, for their NPO status if they're critically ill and they need an airway? You probably are not going to have time to wait, no. But what about all our (laughs) anesthesiology colleagues? <laughs> yeah, trauma, trauma, and intracranial <laughs> pressure often cannot wait for for uh, six hours of NPO. And then uh, the only other thing I think that's helpful from a clinical standpoint is that babies have 
certainly a higher degree of vagal tone. And so during any airway manipulation with an infant, they are prone to bradycardia. And so in most cases, we are going to pre-treat infants with a dose of atropine prior to, to any airway management. Okay. So the other thing I saw just kind of looking through the content outline, they talked about plan for appropriate ventilatory support um, for patients with very con- various conditions. I think what that's probably just hinting at is whether you use like a nasal cannula versus a face mask versus um, CPAP or something along those lines. Do you have kind of groups of kids that you think about? Like for me, bronchiolytic or bronchiolytics typically they need the flow so something like a heated humidified nasal cannula um any other like illnesses that you would think of a particular type of ventilation strategy yeah so it's a good question i think generally speaking for board purposes children with you know viral induced respiratory process processes high flow nasal cannula would be appropriate uh something may come up where it's a case of um neuromuscular weakness, something like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, a good option for those particular patients is going to be some type of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, something like CPAP or BiPAP. Certainly if they give you a vignette where you've got an over-respiratory acidosis or hypoxemic respiratory failure defined as a PaO2 less than 60. Those are kind of objective numerical criteria for hypercarbic and hypoxemic respiratory failure, respectively. And the correct answer in most of those instances is going to be to uh, intubate and proceed with mechanical ventilation. All right. Very helpful. Obviously, that kid was pretty sick that we just worked through. Um, We did cover hypovolemic shock, septic shock, albeit briefly, but I think thoroughly enough for the board exams. There is another type of shock shock that we're expected to know, and that's cardiogenic shock. What kind of things should we be thinking about um, for cardiogenic shock that may pop up on the boards for us? Yeah, good question. So with cardiogenic shock, for the the vignettes, you're going to see a lot of the same patient findings as the child we just discussed. You'll see tachycardia, weak pulses, delayed capillary refill, etc. But there should be specific items pointed out in the case that will guide you toward a cardiogenic diagnosis. You might have hepatomegaly from venous congestion. They may, uh, on auscultation, say that you hear crackles from pulmonary edema. A murmur you may or may not have, depending on the particular cardiac lesion. Likewise, a gallop may be present, as in the case of a cardiomyopathy. But practically speaking, sometimes gallops are really difficult to appreciate on exam, especially if the child is quite tachycardiac. And then lastly, uh, in the setting of cardiogenic shock, uh, sometimes we'll we'll have an x-ray at our disposal that'll show cardiomegaly and, again, pulmonary edema. I think in terms of etiologies of cardiogenic shock, um, in pediatrics, it's going to be pretty dependent upon the age of the child. If they give you a patient who's still in the neonatal period, Uh, The cardiac lesions to be thinking about are those that have ductal-dependent systemic blood flow. So the classic examples there are going to be interrupted aortic arch, critical aortic stenosis, and hypoplastic left heart syndrome. 
as kids get a little bit older and you kind of transition out of the neonatal period into the two to three month old range, uh, you're thinking about a big uh, VSD with pulmonary overcirculation or uh, another more rare cardiac lesion would be Alcapa, which is anomalous left coronary artery arising from the pulmonary artery. And then another scenario you might encounter from a cardiac standpoint is a, is a kid who has kind of a longer standing history of poor weight gain, progressive fatigue, maybe getting diaphoretic. That's probably going to tip you off to some type of cardiomyopathy. And then the last one that commonly comes up on exam is a child who over the preceding week had usually an upper respiratory infection and now they present with acute fulminant heart failure. That's going to be the kid with viral myocarditis that you don't want to miss. I feel like those two are always tested. The previous being the failure to thrive, sweating uh, during feeds, you know, just having overall poor weight gain, everything. And they end up having something wrong with their heart. So I think that that's definitely a vignette that we need to know. And then also the myocarditis. Yeah. I feel like that's tested consistently as yeah. well. And in either scenario, regardless of etiology, obviously the the initial diagnostic test of choice is going to be an echocardiogram. And then in terms of therapeutic strategies for cardiogenic shock, rather than aggressive fluid resuscitation, as was the case for our patient with sepsis, For cardiogenic shock, the mainstay of therapy is going to be some type of inotropic medication to increase cardiac contractility, such as dopamine, epinephrine, milrinone, etc. And then from a a clinical standpoint, another really important inotrope and something to optimize is your patient's ionized calcium, especially for those infants in heart failure. So we got to make the heart squeeze harder. Make it pump harder. Improve cardiac output, absolutely. All right, so we're going to shift gears again, and we're going to move on to problems with the liver, so hepatic failure. What types of things do we need to be thinking about from that standpoint? Well, fortunately, in pediatrics, acute fulminate hepatic failure is quite rare, but when we take care of these kids, they certainly have the capacity to become quite ill. In terms of pediatric liver failure in general, the most common indication for pediatric liver transplant across the board is going to be biliary atresia, but that's going to be more of a more of a chronic liver failure type of process. And so what I want us to focus in on is the is the setting of acute liver failure. And so the etiologies of acute liver failure in children are going to be dependent upon the child's age. In infants, the number one cause, broadly speaking, is metabolic disorders, things like galactosemia, OTC deficiency, disorders of fatty acid oxidation, etc. Beyond infancy, uh, as you move into children, the number one etiology is going to be infectious uh, with a high number of viral infections, things like hepatitis A, B, enterovirus, etc. And then lastly, in adolescence, the big offender here is toxic ingestions, not surprisingly with the most common ingestion being acetaminophen. 
So with that list in place, notably anywhere from 20 to 50% of the time, we don't actually identify an underlying etiology for the child's liver failure. Those patients go into this kind of lump category of idiopathic hepatic failure. I feel like one of the most difficult things about the boards is the fact that you've done this twice now in the last two sections that each age group has different sets of causes. That's one of the things that keeps us on our toes in pediatrics. <laughs> For sure. Anywhere from a three-day-old baby up to an 18-year-old teenager. It really uh, broadens the differential. And, and I think they're not just small adults. That's exactly right. <laughs> All right, more on acute liver failure. Um, so in terms of board content, I think one of the things that will probably come up is you are presented with a child that has acute transaminitis. They've got an AST and ALT uh, in the thousands and rising. Maybe the bilirubin's a little bit elevated as well, although jaundice and hyperbilirubinemia tend to be a little bit more of a late finding. What else clinically do you need to be concerned about for these children with acute liver failure? So there's a couple things. Number one is in the setting of impaired liver function, clotting factors become deficient. And so these patients will be coagulopathic, their INR will be quite elevated, and they're at risk for bleeding complications. Likewise, uh, another protein that the liver doesn't make when it's sick is albumin. And so those patients will have a low serum albumin. Uh, The little kids, particularly their hepatic gluconeogenesis, can start to decline, and so they're at risk for hypoglycemia. And then A subset of patients will develop acute kidney failure that is known as the hepatorenal syndrome. And out of all the complications on the list when it comes to fulminate acute hepatic failure, the most concerning finding, without a doubt, is hepatic encephalopathy. And so normally, uh, our body's liver clears out harmful endogenous substances which are produced in our body. But this this normal kind of protective clearance starts to become deficient in the setting of liver failure. And so you've got a lot of toxic substances, most notably ammonia, that start to accumulate, and those can cause direct toxicity to the brain. And so in its most severe form, hepatic encephalopathy can result in significant cerebral edema, increased intracranial pressure, and brainstem herniation. All right. Sounds like kids with acute liver failure can be some of the sickest of the sick that we take care of. They are the patients that probably make us the most nervous in the ICU, for sure. All right. Well, we're going to cover one more topic, and it's a difficult topic, difficult on many levels, um, but unfortunately, well, it's just something we got to know. It's on the content outline they expect us to know. And that is determining brain death uh, in a patient. So can you talk about your process and the just overall process for determining brain death in our patients? Yeah, I think a lot of times the, the concept or the notion of brain death can be one that is a little bit difficult to understand, not only for the general population and our patients' families, but also sometimes within the medical community as well. You may sometimes hear brain death referred to as death by neurologic criteria. So the implication here is 
So we traditionally think of patients dying from cardiac failure, where they have loss of cardiac activity. However, brain death is a more rare in a separate way in which patients are declared both clinically and legally dead. And brain death occurs when there's complete loss of all brain activity throughout the entire brain, including both uh, cerebral hemispheres as well as the brainstem. And so within this diagnosis of brain death, there's really three essential findings that you need to have. Number one is coma. Secondly is absence of brainstem reflexes. And the third and final criteria is apnea. And so clinically, we diagnose brain death right at the patient's bedside with a comprehensive neurologic exam. Coma is simply the absence of a motor response um, in response to a noxious stimulation. Second thing we do is we test for all of the brainstem reflexes, excluding the olfactory response. And then lastly, once we've assessed for coma and brainstem reflexes, uh, we will actually disconnect these patients from mechanical ventilation and assess apnea, meaning do they have or do not have a respiratory drive in response to hypercarbia. In our practice in pediatrics, uh, you need two separate clinical brain death exams performed by two separate uh, attending physicians. And so the question comes up sometimes is, do you need some type of neuroradiologic study? And the answer is, not always. We do not routinely utilize what are called ancillary studies in our clinical practice. They really have a role when there are certain clinical factors that might limit our ability to perform a complete neurologic exam at the bedside. Probably a, a traditional or common example would be, let's say, a trauma patient that has a high cervical spine injury. And because of that high C-spine injury, they've lost their ability to trigger their own breath. And so their apnea exam becomes uninterpretable because of that cervical spine injury. So that's really the role for some type of ancillary study. In our particular institution, the confirmatory test of choice is a what's called a cerebral blood flow study that's performed down in nuclear medicine. And basically what you are looking for is absence of, int of any intracerebral blood flow. All right, so we need to identify the coma, the absence of brainstem reflexes using our clinical exam, and then apnea in most cases, meaning taking them off the ventilator. Those are the three criteria. Yes. Okay, and how you arrive at that criteria may be different in different places, but those are the three criteria that you need. That's true. Every institution has their own pediatric brain death protocol, but we have good guidelines from the Society of Critical Care Medicine for Pediatric Brain Death that were published back in 2012. And so most academic institutions, their brain death pathway look really, really similar. Which is helpful. Don't yeah. want a lot of variation from that. Exactly. Especially given the obvious gravity of, of this particular diagnosis. Exactly. Well, Dr. Hobson, it's been a pleasure. We really appreciate you coming on with us. Thanks a lot. It's good to be here. We'll be reaching you out uh, again, I'm sure, for some more uh, critical care corner. Sounds good. All right. Thank you.